Welcome to our first, well, continuation of a multi-part episode here for Unheard Voices. This is Andrew Manier, and once again, joining me is Jesse Burridge. Hey, Andrew. How's it going, man? Doing all right. We have quite an impressive list of notes and, and script here that we did for this second episode on the topic of Christian nationalism and specifically white Christian nationalism being one of the major issues in American society and politics right now. So we're going to jump straight in to the topic today. And I know in the last episode, we talked about focusing on some specific individuals. And we do talk about one or two or three individuals that had influence over the more contemporary version of the movement post-moral majority. But we're going to have to delay our discussion of the individual issues in greater detail to probably a third episode here. (laughs) We have both stumbled across a trove of very interesting and also unsettling information here. And we wanted to do the topic justice, so we both contributed at least four pages of notes between us to get the episode together here. So let's go ahead and jump in here. So in our last episode, we covered the history of Christian nationalist movements going all the way back to the colonization of America and all the way up to the formation of the moral majority movement in the late 70s. Now, in the last episode, Jesse spoke briefly about an evangelical pastor by the name of Francis Schaeffer, who Jesse referred to as... uh, the intellectual godfather of the Christian right, and his propaganda campaign, which rallied the religious right around the wedge issue of abortion. But that wasn't the limit of his influence. In 1981, he wrote a book called A Christian Manifesto, in which Schaefer outlined much of the philosophy that informed the moral majority movement. Now, according to Schaefer, U.S. moral culture was collapsing because of two major influences, materialism and humanism. Now, this isn't 1980s materialism and the idea of buying big screen TVs and fast cars and cocaine. This is uh, philosophical materialism, which is the idea that states of matter and energy are all that exist in reality. And there's no external supernatural or spiritual force that created the universe or affects our daily lives. In turn, this influences humanism, which implies that To quote Schaefer himself, man is the measure of all things. Humanists, he argue, only value what truths man can decipher for himself by observing reality and disregard all forms of revelatory truth given by God, which include the value of human life, spiritual purpose, and an authoritative moral structure that should inform our laws. Now, I think both of us would probably disagree with this definition of humanism, at least insofar as while we reject revelatory truth as being unsubstantiated, I think we would probably say that humanists value human life. That's kind of the whole idea of being a humanist, is that human lives have values. We just deny a supernatural authority over issues of morality, etc., Jesse, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. He's misconstruing hubris for humanism. He's saying that 
to be a humanist, you have to be all about the primacy of humanity, but that's not it at all. Being a humanist, in, in my view at least, is being about the project of the advancement of humanity. And he's, uh, I don't know, would straw manning be the right way to put it? The way he's not necessarily representing the, the issue that he's arguing against in um, an accurate or fair way. Uh, I would say so, but I think at the same time, he believes he's honestly representing the idea of humanism from his spiritual and religious perspective. So I think it's a little different, say, when you have apologists, you know, who straw man the theory of evolution because they have had enough interactions with secular individuals to actually be exposed to all the facts of evolution and they purposefully misrepresent it to appeal to their audience. Whereas I believe Schaefer probably honestly believes this idea of humanism and I think while he's off base, I think your description was very good. He's, he's mistaking hubris for humanism. Now, in Schaefer's view, every breakaway from traditional, and when we say traditional in any context in this uh, episode, we're specifically talking about Christian morality. So every breakaway from traditional Christian morality in the U.S. law was influenced by secular values taking hold of the government. Now, remember, according to fundamentalist Christians, anything not derived from God, in this case secularism, is intrinsically satanic in origin. And we'll see that come up a couple times later on as well. Now, his book outlines several issues that he believed it was the responsibility of the moral majority movement to address through political action. So his first target was America's educational system. And while Falwell and Weyrich were spurred into action as a result of forced desegregation of private Christian schools, uh, Schaefer was more concerned with the curriculum in public schools, which pushed the ideas of materialism and evolution. He claimed that Christian taxpayers were being forced to support the quote-unquote tyranny of schools refusing to teach creationism in favor of evolution. Now, the teaching of evolution had actually been banned from many public schools in the 1920s, and this prohibition lasted into the 1960s. Uh, in point of fact, at the time that his book was written, there were no such restrictions. Evolution and creationism had to be taught side by side. It wasn't until 1987 that Edwards v. Aguillard court case barred the teaching of creationism from public schools. So Christians have continued to fight against this banning of creationism from public school, uh, instead rebranding it to intelligent design. <laughs> yeah. Teach the controversy. <laughs> yes, teach the controversy. Well, that was the catchphrase in the time of Schaefer and the moral majority movement was teach the controversy. So Christians tried again to force creationism into public schools in 2005 when the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial finally proved that in a court of law, intelligent design is no different from creationism. It has no evidentiary support and would not be included in public school curriculum. Now, his next target, unsurprisingly, was the medical community. Since the secular government was being influenced by materialism and humanism, there was no longer any support for the ideas of inalienable rights or the inalienable value of human life. Since abortion had been legalized, he argued, it was now considered to be ethical or even a, a moral good. And there are, you know, 
debates that could be had about the morality of abortion when it comes to the survivability of the mother or cases of rape or incest. But that's something that we'll probably address when we talk about the specific issues, possibly in the next episode. Now, moreover, he cited doctors that were practicing eugenics by starving disabled infants in their care. And apparently, in the 80s, this was actually a thing, that uh, babies with severe disabilities diagnosed at birth or Down syndrome were being basically starved in their bassinets in the hospitals because there was some misguided movement at the time to spare the parents the responsibility of having to raise a child that had such disabilities. So that, I would definitely agree, is a moral issue worth addressing at the time. But to top it all off, he warned that the adult children of his elderly congregation would be influenced by this secular thinking to euthanize them if they became a burden. So some pretty obvious hyperbolic fear-mongering there, but uh, such practices, he argued, were bringing America only one step away from Hitler's concentration camps. So, of course, he had to go full Godwin's law there at the end. Now, at this point, he argues for greater political involvement among Christians, invoking the Christian values of the Founding Fathers, although many of them were deist, which means they kind of supported the idea of God as the universe or God as some non-intervening creative force, while other of the Founding Fathers outright hated Christianity. He claimed that breaking away from God's laws were akin to breaking away from the Constitution. So again, we see this equating of, of Christian values with the founding of the American society. He went on to, ironically, from a modern context, criticize the Supreme Court and the power of these unelected individuals to enforce or overturn laws that didn't align with Christian values. So, of course, you know, if the courts are cited against the Christians, then uh, the court is unconstitutional. But uh, the moment that they have a majority of ultra-conservatives on the Supreme Court, then everything's fine and dandy. Meanwhile, he argued that in regards to international policy, America's export of democracy, read imperialism, could not succeed unless they also exported American-style Christianity along with it. So that's kind of the overview of Schaefer as the intellectual godfather of the moral majority movement. Jesse's going to tell us a little bit more about the moral majority movement here. Jesse, go ahead. So up to this point, we've mentioned the idea of the moral majority a number of times. But we haven't actually really delved into any detail of what the actual movement was. It would actually be pretty hard to overstate the impact this political organization had on the social and political landscape of the United States. Founded in 1979 by Jerry Falwell, who we've mentioned earlier, the Moral Majority was a response to what Falwell and others viewed as the liberalization of America that came in the form of numerous social and cultural transformations during the 60s and 70s. Christian fundamentalists of the day were concerned that things like the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, permissive sexual morality, and the teaching of evolution would undermine the country's traditional moral values. I'll also point out really quick that the Equal Rights Amendment and the rise of feminism was also a target of much of their ire because it was breaking away from these traditional family values in which women 
were the caregivers in the household and men were the breadwinners. What? What? Women can't have jobs? That's crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they also opposed the U.S. Supreme Court rulings that banned uh, the institutionally initiated group prayer and Bible reading in public schools. Um, I have uh, the name of the case there uh, in quotes. It's the school district of Abington Township versus Shemp was the original actual Supreme Court decision there. Um, and the one that affirmed the legal right to an abortion, the famous Roe v. Wade case. This organization served to energize the religious right and very quickly grew to several million members. The moral majority's activities included voter registration, lobbying, and fundraising. Its impact on American politics was almost immediate as it was credited with helping Republican Ronald Reagan win the presidential election of 1980, which, as we mentioned earlier, Falwell was all too quick to take credit for. The movement lasted about 10 years and disbanded in 1989, a couple of years after divisions became apparent. When 1988, Falwell supported George Bush instead of Pat Robertson, who I will return to in some detail later. Oh, boy. While the organization officially dissolved in 1989 after a dramatic decrease in fundraising, Falwell declared the organization had accomplished its mission, saying, quote, Our goal has been achieved. The religious right is solidly in place, and religious conservatives in America are now in for the duration. So I that's so interesting that... Falwell didn't support Robertson's run for president. He supported a Bush instead. Mm. And that's actually what led to the downfall of that whole movement was they disagreed on who was more godlike and should be president. Well, we'll get into Robertson's life and presidential run later on. But uh, here's the other thing. You know, these churches uh, and this organization obviously has tax-exempt status and they're using the tithing, the donations of their congregations specifically to fund lobbying efforts, which does seem unconstitutional by a couple of different of the tax laws that we had discussed the first time. So we'll definitely talk a bit more about Pat Robertson here shortly. But uh, at this point, we're going to focus on the golden boy of the Christian right. So inspired by the moral majority movement, evangelicals came out in droves to support Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. Now, Jerry Falwell advocated for Reagan using his massive televangelist network to reach between 7 and 10 million viewers. And in the end, the evangelical vote was key in 12 of the 17 states that flipped from Carter to Reagan. 80% of evangelicals would go on to vote for Reagan again during his re-election campaign in 1984. And Falwell took personal pride in the influence he had gained over American politics in the 80s. So for his part, Reagan did much to pander to evangelical voters, catering to the spiritual, traditionalist, and racial aspects of their political agenda. Reagan's 1980 platform was largely focused on the idea of states' rights, coded language that appealed to the lingering anger over desegregation policies. In the same vein... He attempted but failed to lower federally imposed restrictions to the Voting Rights Act. So obviously attack on democracies, something that's been ongoing for many decades here in the right wing. Moreover, he expanded the racially motivated war on drugs, increasing mandatory minimum sentences for those arrested for possession. Now, following his re-election, he engaged with the abortion issue by attempting to veto the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987, which demanded that any entities receiving federal funding 
must comply to all civil rights acts in all of their operations. Now, specifically, the act stipulated that federally funded entities could provide abortion services and could not discriminate against those seeking abortion. Reagan argued that the act would, quote, diminish substantially the freedom and independence of religious institutions in our society. Now, when we talk about the specific issues in the next episode, I believe, I think the idea of Christian taxpayers not wanting their tax money to fund things that are counter to their religious beliefs, I think Jesse and I could probably agree to the sentiment of that idea. That does seem like a reasonable and intellectually consistent position to hold, whether we agree or disagree with the intellectual consistency of their worldview in the first place, I think we can at least both agree that we understand how Christians wouldn't want their tax money to fund things that are against their religious beliefs. Right. And just to interject a little bit of agreement there with you, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Even when I strongly identified as Christian, I always believed that a secular government is required for freedom of religion. You can't Mm. have one particular group dictating their ideology and then expect everyone else to enjoy the freedom to practice whatever religion they have, or from my perspective now, no religion at all. In other words, Mm. if everyone else isn't free to believe in an unrestricted way, I can't be sure that I'll be free to not believe. Right. That'll be something I think we'll both uh, touch on again later on as well. But again, it should also be pointed out that the majority of Christians do support the separation of church and state, but their voting behavior can often be influenced into supporting politicians who do not have such tolerant views. Now, getting back to uh, Reagan here, other aspects of Reagan's political agenda included the promotion of, quote, traditional family values, including not only opposition to state acknowledgement of gay rights and the disastrous handling of the AIDS crisis, but also in his opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, prohibiting gender discrimination in the workplace. He also supported prayer in public schools and challenged laws that obstructed religious homeschooling. Statistically, 80% of homeschooled children are in evangelical families. Now, Reagan didn't shy away from appointing religious individuals to his administration either. Reverend Robert Billings was made head of the Department of Education. Biblical literalist James G. Watt was made Secretary of the Interior. Now, Watt was strongly anti-environmentalist, and it's claimed, although this is somewhat unsubstantiated, that in an appearance before Congress in 1981, he stated, quote, when the last tree is felled, Jesus will return. So, again, this is something we'll also talk about in issues. The refusal to engage with the reality of climate change is often influenced by Christian Zionism, this idea of the imminent end times, and that there's no reason to preserve the environment or be stewards of the earth because Jesus is coming back to murder everyone soon. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, finally, Reagan also made anti-abortion activist C. Everett Koop Surgeon General. So he was very willing to place evangelical or highly religious individuals in 
positions of power within his administration. Now, throughout his time in office, Reagan made a point of openly courting the religious right. In his speeches and appearances, he made more allusions to religion and God than any previous president. Uh, as Stephen Miller, writing for Salon, stated, Reagan started the trend, quote, in which conservatives must display public religiosity in a manner that is inevitably calculated and yet cannot appear overtly so. In addition, the trend of using the phrase, God bless America, during presidential addresses started with Reagan. Now, growing up and, and over the years, I had just always heard the presidents, you know, and their addresses with God bless America, and didn't realize that that specifically started with Reagan. Responding to this overt pandering, journalist Coleman McCarthy said, quote, Religion is honored when it is separated from party platforms and valued for the moral force of faith and hope. It is dishonored when it is Americanized and militarized. Earlier presidents have done one or the other. Reagan is the first to do both. Now, Reagan's social conservatism and his courtship of evangelicals set the standard for every Republican politician that has followed. But the lack of solid progress towards their political agenda encouraged greater involvement still. And in 1988, popular televangelist Pat Robertson attempted to run for president. So now I'll hand things over to Jesse to tell us a bit more about Robertson himself and his unsuccessful bid at the presidency. So growing up in, in a Christian household in Midwest U.S., Pat Robertson was a household name. Um, most of us really, we knew who he was. We used to watch 700 Club TV show, this kooky talk show that he's famous for hosting for the last 50 years. And uh, he styles himself as a prophet of God, and he frequently makes such claims as saying... Disneyland's gay days would, quote, bring about terrorist bombs that'll bring earthquakes, tornadoes, and possibly a meteor. And aside from blaming gays for things like terrorism and natural disasters, he's also uttered such deep insights as, you might get AIDS in Kenya. People have AIDS. You'll be, you'll be careful. I mean, the towels could have AIDS. And the Antichrist is probably a Jew alive in Israel today. And... I know one man who was impotent who gave AIDS to his wife and the only thing they did was kiss. So, How did they know he was impotent if the only thing they've <laughs> ever done is kiss? Or, I, or do they believe he's impotent because the only thing they've done is kiss and she's not I, yet pregnant? I don't know. Maybe he had Robertson bless his... I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh. lay, 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 the laying on of hands. Anyway. Um, Ew. <laughs> Sounds like a shady massage parlor there. Uh, um, and my personal favorite quote of Robertson's is the following. Just like what Nazi Germany did to the Jews, so liberal America is now doing to the evangelical Christians. It's no different. It's the same thing. It mm. is happening all over again. It is the Democratic Congress, the liberal-based media, and the homosexuals who want to destroy the Christians. Wholesale abuse and discrimination and the worst bigotry directed toward any group in America today. More terrible than anything suffered by any minority in... I'm sorry, I can't keep a straight face. Oh, <laughs> so, my God. By any minority in history. He is so playing the victim here. And the reason I read those quotes is... I just... I kind of want to set the stage a little bit for the kind of person Pat Robertson actually is. Yeah. Because not only does he believe he speaks for God, he really does buy his own bullshit. He really is a true believer. I, probably more in himself than in Jesus, I would think, actually. Yeah, by the looks of things here, definitely. Yeah, and aside from being a reliable wellspring of crazy quotes, Robertson <laughs> has been active in politics as well. 
even going so far as to run for president. He serves as the chairman of CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network. Uh, originally, Robertson set out to be a businessman, actually. He graduated with honors from Yale Law School in 1955, but failed the New York bar exam, which he described as a minor setback because he had no intention to practice law, and he had already had a successful career with a major corporation on Wall Street, which begs the question, why take the bar exam? So he could use his failure as uh, just one other platform from which he could declare his victimhood, I guess. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Good thing he he didn't get kicked out of art school. Um... <laughs> That's a Hitler joke for those who don't know that Hitler was an unsuccessful painter before he became a, a dictator. <laughs> well, you did mention Godwin's Law earlier. I felt like I was That's kind true. of... That's <laughs> true. Good callback. Good callback. Robertson becomes interesting, though, in the early 60s when he claims to have found Jesus in Philadelphia while having dinner with World War II veteran Cornelius Vanderbrecken. After his conversion, Robertson left behind the corporate world and began his ministry, which ultimately spanned over 50 years, and saw him found such organizations as the Christian Broadcasting Network that I mentioned earlier, Regent University, Operation Blessing International Relief, and Development Corporation, and the International Family Entertainment Incorporated, the American Center for Law and Justice, the ACLG, not to be confused with the ACLU. Mm. Uh, and also the Founders in and Conference Center and the Christian Coalition. So He's been a busy little bee there. Yeah, he's had his fingers in a lot. And Pat Robertson, like Falwell, has been one of the really major voices in shaping the attitudes of the Christian right over the last uh, couple of generations. And he's still around, and he's still pops out of his coffin every once in a while to say something about a current issue. But um, in addition to all his loony bona fides, Robertson announced his intention to seek the Republican nomination for President of the United States in September of 1986, the month and year I was born, as a matter of fact. You guys can't see this since it's an audio medium, but I'm I'm shaking my head and face palming at this right now. But let's, <laughs> let's go ahead here. <laughs> He was running against incumbent Vice President George H.W. Bush in what most political analysts called something of a long shot, you could say. Mm. Robertson ran on a standard conservative platform, and as a candidate, he embraced the same policies as Ronald Reagan. Lower taxes, a balanced budget, and a strong defense. Ultimately, though, Robertson dropped out of the race before the primaries had ended— uh, after having only won three or four contests, uh, he told his remaining supporters to cast their votes for Bush, who went on to win the presidency. After his unsuccessful presidential campaign, Robertson started the Christian Coalition, a 1.7 million member Christian right organization that campaigned mostly for conservative candidates. He also served as a governing member of the Council for National Policy. He continued his career as a televangelist thereafter, appearing regularly on his CBN show, The 700 Club, until 2021, when he retired with an estimated net worth of $100 million. While he is mostly looked at with disdain these days, Robertson had and continues to have a major impact on the views and political leanings of the Christian right. He still pops up from time to time to make a divinely inspired pronouncement about things such as predicting Trump would win the 2020 election and then an mm -hmm. asteroid would hit and possibly destroy the Earth. He also supported Trump's failed legal efforts to overturn the election, and while he's mostly fading into obscurity now at age 92, Robertson's success as a televangelist and political figure serves as a case study in how someone so seemingly out of touch with reality can mobilize an entire segment of society by claiming to speak for God. And can you imagine this homophobic Keebler elf 
like actually <laughs> winning a presidential election. And, you know, the scary thing is that in the post-Trump world, I could see one of his younger contemporaries spouting the same homophobia and anti-science and well marjorie taylor green dude she's she's actively saying all of these things out loud now i mean they're they're trying to grow babies in peach tree dishes man peach tree dishes yes (laughs) and don't forget the jewish space lasers all the jewish space lasers setting uh forest fires in california if you criticize any liberals they'll send the gazpacho police after you (laughs) and it's just like i mean people can be forgiven for you know, flubbing something. I mean, our listeners don't usually get to hear the stuff that <laughs> I edit out of the podcast right, right. when when we misspeak or, or stutter. But when you have somebody who's in the public eye who, I mean, is just profoundly ignorant. Profoundly ignorant. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, but... It kind of goes to show the mentality of the people who elect individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, if they believe she represents their interests or she speaks to them in certain ways, then... Oh, they do. She is very popular with her constituents. They like her <sighs> a lot. Uh, I just saw uh, yesterday, just as a, a, a side note, one of her campaign commercials was her talking about how she was going to address the issues of socialism in America and her visual metaphor for doing so was kind of par for the course in a lot of these conservative commercials where she ratcheted a 50 BMG and blew up a minivan with socialism (laughs) spray painted on the side of it (laughs) oh my god it was a Bill Maher segment I was watching that we're talking about political advertising and how, and this is something we'll probably see more and more of as time goes on. The metaphor, if you can even call it that at this point, uh, the thinly veiled wish fulfillment of these Republican government leaders is basically to just shoot anything they believe to be a problem. (laughs) Yeah, subtlety is not a thing for these people. (laughs) No, no, it is not. Okay, now... Moving on here, Uh, despite Robertson's failed attempt at capturing the presidency, Christian nationalists continued to support the Republican Party and came out in large numbers to elect George Bush Sr., as well as George W. Bush. Now, 9-11 presented a new challenge. Not only was there a culture war raging in America between the secularists and the religious, there was now a religiously motivated external threat to the country in the form of radical Islam. The September 11th attacks and following wars supercharged the growing militant nature of the Christian nationalists. Not only were increasingly abusive, patriarchal, and misogynist church leaders gaining in popularity, but so too did increasingly pro-war mentalities. Surveys during the Iraq War indicated that white evangelicals were enthusiastic about the war, supported preemptive war, condoned the use of torture, and embraced aggressively pro-Christian pro-Israel foreign policy. The subsequent election of Barack Obama surprised the white Christian nationalist movement and reinvigorated their efforts for grassroots-level political change. It's at this time we see the rise of the Tea Party movement and the quote-unquote new right. It's like new coke. (laughs) 
As the Tea Partiers were initially focused on tax reform and conservative fiscal policies, the Christian nationalists sensed a potential schism in the Republican voting bloc. In the book, Where Liberty Reigns and God is Supreme, the Christian Right and the Tea Party, writers Angelia Wilson and Cynthia Burrock wrote that, quote, Christian right political influence depends on the political salience of the culture issues that form the core of the Christian conservative ideology. Without these cultural issues, the Christian right effectively could be replaced by a secular movement such as the Tea Party. Now, enter Ralph Reed, who had founded the Christian Coalition in the early 90s. He then created a new organization, the Faith and Freedom Coalition, with the specific intent of recruiting and financially supporting leaders of the Tea Party. And I'll let Jesse here tell listeners a little bit about Reed himself. So um, as I mentioned, like just before we started recording, I didn't know mm. anything about Ralph Reed. I'd never heard of him. So all of this was very new information for me. But um, apparently he was a pretty key player in, a, in sort of like a behind the scenes supporting some very interesting people. He began his political career in college at the University of Georgia, where he earned his bachelor's degree in history in 1985. Um, he there served as a columnist and editor of the college newspaper called The Red and Black. Of particular note, during his career on the journalism staff there in 1983, he wrote a column for the paper titled Gandhi, Ninny of the 20th Century. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> anyway. I haven't, I haven't read Jesse's script here, so this is all news to me, too. Go ahead, Jesse. <laughs> Shortly after Reed's article ran, another student wrote in and made a compelling case that, quote, every assertion, every quote, and several seemingly original Reed phrases may be found directly or in slightly modified form in a commentary article by Richard Grenier. Reed was then discharged from his role in the college newspaper for plagiarism. Hmm. Reed was also a member of the, I am probably going to pronounce this incorrectly, the Demosthenian Literary Society, the Jasper Dorsey Intercollegiate Debate Society, and College Republicans. He is also the alumnus of the Leadership Institute in Arlington, Virginia, an organization that teaches conservative Americans how to influence public policy through activism and leadership. Reed then obtained his PhD in American history from Emory University in 1991. So not an idiot, but also not probably the most honest guy to start off yeah. with. Reed says that he found religion in a bar on Capitol Hill <laughs> called Bullfeathers, where he said, quote, the Holy Spirit simply demanded me to come to Jesus, end quote. According to his own account, he then walked outside to a phone booth outside of the bar searched the Yellow Pages for churches, where he found the Evangelical Assembly of God Church in Camp Springs, Maryland. Uh, he then visited the next morning and became a born-again Christian. Now, that's his own account of it. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anybody else there to, like, confirm that. That was just how he said he found Jesus. Right. Uh, he founded and also led a group called Students for America, the SFA, a conservative activist group supported by U.S. Senator Jesse Helms. Uh, the organization quickly became largely dominated by members of the Maranatha Campus Ministries, a charismatic Christian ministry that existed officially from 1971 to 1990. SFA established chapters on college campuses primarily along the East Coast. They supported Senator Helms' bid for re-election and organized protests at abortion clinics, uh, one of which actually, as a side note, uh, Reed was arrested at uh, one of those protests. Okay. He left the SFA for a much larger Christian coalition. The SFA then disbanded in the early 90s. 
Um, after he left the SFA, Reed was hired as the executive director of the Christian Coalition by Pat Robertson. Mm-hmm. These same names keep popping up. Yep. They keep repeating Balwell and Robertson. Mm-hmm. Reed was hired as the executive director of the Christian Coalition by Pat Robertson, where he worked from 89 to 97. The coalition organized uh, former Robertson supporters and other religious conservatives to oppose political liberalism. He rejected the confrontational tactics of street protest that he learned in college and attempted to project a softer face of Christian conservatism. A softer, more punchable face. (laughs) In the 1990s, Reed and the coalition protested the Clinton administration's policies. They were credited with mobilizing Christian conservatives in support of the Republican candidates in the 1994 congressional elections. Reed appeared on the cover of Time on May 15, 1995, under the title The Right Hand of God, Ralph Reed of the Christian Coalition. Oh, geez. Very humble there. (laughs) Those are some grandiose delusions. Um, Yeah, no kidding. In 1996, the Federal Election Commission brought an enforcement action in the United States District Court, alleging Reid and the coalition, quote, violated federal campaign finance laws during congressional elections in 1990, 1992, and 1994, and the presidential election in 1992. Wow. Busy. (laughs) After a three-year investigation and a lawsuit, the federal court ordered the coalition to pay a small fine for two minor infractions, significantly lower than what the FEC had called for. So they charged him with a bunch of stuff, but uh, he's slimy enough that it wouldn't stick, so they got him on some lesser charges. Mm. But there's definitely a pattern emerging with Reed here where he seems very, very opportunistic and very, very willing to do whatever it takes to get his short-term gain. Yep, and that'll be a running trend here moving forward. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. In 2001, Reed was elected Georgia Republican Party chairman with the support of the, quote, Confederate Republican Caucus, a block of almost 500 heritage, in quotes, activists, who had participated in the state convention to protest the removal of the Confederate battle emblem from the state flag. The group then claimed they were double-crossed by Reed when documents released by federal investigators showed much of his campaign was financed by the Choctaws, a Native American tribe with strong interests in the gambling industry. Again, Mm. Reed shows his duplicitous and opportunistic nature. Currently, Reed is known as one of former President Trump's most prominent Christian supporters, and wrote a book released in 2020 entitled For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. According to the book's description, the original title for the book was to, quote, render to God and Trump, a reference to the well-known Bible verse in Matthew 22, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now, I was always taught (laughs) that Mm. verse was a command to tithe that was right to reserve 10 percent of the first fruits of your income for god that's what i was mm. thought that verse meant but in modern political parlance it has been taken to be a command to obey government and in reed's case more specifically trump personally mm. in the book he argues evangelicals have a duty to defend the incumbent republican leader from the godless evil radical left and their pro-abortion anti-american agenda He has been central in casting Trump's political campaign as divinely inspired and frequently cited scripture to rationalize some of Trump's most controversial policies. All told, Reed has penned seven books, including three fictional political novels. Now, as I mentioned going into that section there, I didn't know anything about Reed, but my personal take on him, and this is purely opinion, 
is that he's an opportunistic grifter who attaches himself to whomever he feels will propel his career to the highest. From Robertson mm. to Falwell and most recently Trump, Reed has attached himself like a tick to the foreskin of multiple influential <laughs> figures of the religious right. <laughs> oh, God. And served as their unabashed defender, hoping for notoriety and recognition. I would also speculate, but cannot confirm, that his supposed conversion in that bar in D.C. was more a move of political expedience than a genuine change of heart. Mm. He's a shining example of the caliber of person this movement attracts with its promise of power. And I'm sorry, I couldn't keep a straight face. I'd forgotten that I'd included that phrase in there, but it really did. That's great. It really is. I like it. <laughs> he doesn't have the sway to fuck people quite as hard on his own, so he's got to <laughs> hitch right on the foreskin on these other people. <laughs> Oh, that's good. I think uh, it, it's good to, to bring a couple of jokes and some levity into these uh, very deeply researched and scripted episodes here. Right. I mean, this, I dig it that. really is such a such a depressing topic to really think about what these people are trying to do. And, like, they're really trying to bring about the end of the world and make this a an actual Christian nation. And that's fucking scary. So, yeah, I kind of want to laugh a little bit. Yeah. Well... The scariest thing is that when when Jesse says bring about the end of the world there, he's not exaggerating. And we'll get into the idea of Christian Zionism later on. But continuing here, uh, as we mentioned, Ralph Reed started this organization called the Faith and Freedom Coalition to support the Tea Party. Now, the stated purpose of the Faith and Freedom Coalition is listed on its website, quote, Together, we will influence public policy and enact legislation that strengthens families, promotes time-honored values, protects the dignity of life and marriage, lowers the tax burden on small businesses and families, and requires government to tighten its belt and live within its means. So right there in the mission statement, we can see this combination of both the fiscal priorities of the Tea Party movement with all of the coded language representing the rather sinister motives of the Christian nationalists. Now, under the guidance of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, key activists were trained to use biblical and secular rhetoric in different settings, with the unifying goal of electing ultra-social and economic conservatives. Later surveys of the Tea Party years showed that the efforts were successful. Demographic shifts occurred under the leadership of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Tea Party years were now predominantly older white evangelical men. They largely supported the idea of America as a Christian nation. They opposed gay marriage and gay adoption. And in addition, 46% of them espoused racist views and had connections to fringe white supremacist groups. Now, if there was any doubt that the Tea Party became a vehicle for white Christian nationalism, let's take a look at some of the figureheads of the Tea Party parroting white Christian nationalist talking points, including Mark Meckler, who is an American political activist, who stated that the Tea Partiers, like himself, were angry about, quote, this idea of separation of church and state, were angry about the removal of God from the public square. Next, we have Kenneth Blackwell, senior fellow at the Family Research Center, which, as a side note, is labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an anti-LGBTQ hate group. Um, now, he stated that the Tea Party would, quote, create a new American century where liberty reigns and God is supreme. Now, obviously, 
This quote was the influence behind the title of the book that I quoted earlier. Tim Ravendahl uh, was ousted as president of the Big Sky Tea Party Association, but not expelled from the movement entirely after his homophobic rant on social media saying, quote, Fruits are decorative. Hang up where they can be seen and appreciated. Call Wyoming for display instructions. Lovely. Lastly, we have Mark Williams, Tea Party spokesperson from California, who responded to NAACP criticism of racism in the movement by repudiating emancipation and described African Americans as lazy and dependent on public handouts. The movement distanced itself from Williams afterwards for saying the quiet part out loud. Right. They have a problem with that. (laughs) Yes. So this last point speaks to the ongoing racial influences that permeate the white Christian nationalist movement, which were now rebranded in less provocative ways, as the Tea Party opposed not only taxes, but bailouts for the victims of the subprime mortgage crisis that led to the 2008 recession. And it should be clear that minorities made up the highest percentage of people who lost their homes. Uh, In addition to resisting non-white immigration, this was also the origin of the birther movement, which questioned (laughs) not only Obama's citizenship, but accused him of secretly being a Muslim and having the goal of bringing Sharia law to the United States. Now, according the Tea Party and bringing them into the fold was a resounding success as evangelicals and Tea Partiers were responsible not only for key Republican votes in the 2010 midterms, as they were for supercharging grassroots elections for school boards, city councils, and county commissions. So this brings us to the modern white Christian nationalist movement. And I can't think of a better summary leading into this topic of white evangelical support for the MAGA movement than a quote by Sinclair Lewis. When fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in the flag and carrying the cross. We have already seen the willingness of professed Christian nationalists to substitute the inclusive teachings of the gospel for exclusivity and a fanatical drive to impose not only social conservatism, but their explicitly theocratic goals. Unfortunately for them, previous Republican presidents were either unwilling or unable to meet these demands. Enter Donald Trump, a man who embodies the extreme opposite of such Christian values as tolerance, charity, fidelity, honesty, humility. Uh, The unflinching support of Trump by evangelicals would seem mysterious, if not outright baffling, without the historical context we've discussed so far. By 2016, in the eyes of these white evangelicals, To quote the YouTube channel Renegade Cut and their video, The Trump Prophecy and the Evangelical Vote, deviation from social conservative policies is anathema. It was necessary for them to exchange critiques of character of political leaders for radical pragmatism and transactional utilitarian political ethics. Uh, Trump was quick to recognize the need for evangelical support and started appealing to them early in his campaign by choosing Mike Pence as his running mate. Jesse will talk a little bit about him later on. And he also began speaking to the modern white evangelicals concerned with nativism, nationalism, and traditionalism. He vowed to protect religious liberty and expand the role of religion in politics, promising to repeal the Johnson Amendment 
in which churches that explicitly advocated for political candidates could lose their tax-exempt status. Much like Reagan before him, by the time the election rolled around in 2016, 81% of evangelicals supported Trump. But it wasn't just Trump's lip service to their Christian identity that won over the movement. Trump's demagoguery oozed machismo, patriarchal dominance through the use of force, and blatantly ethnocentric nationalism in the guise of patriotism. Trump promised to take back America by any means necessary, and this dictatorial persona and unwillingness to compromise embodied the modern ideas of white Christian masculinity. A political strongman that would stand up for their white ethnocentric values and stand against the secular intellectual elites that had been threatening American Christianity since before the moral majority movement. Now, evangelicals were quick to capitalize on Trump's election and gain unhindered access to the halls of power in the U.S. government. And Trump, in turn, accommodated them, hosting several state dinners attended by over 100 evangelical leaders. And while Trump failed to overturn the Johnson Amendment, as promised, he did succeed where previous Republican administrations had failed by installing three ultra-conservative justices to the Supreme Court. I'll let Jesse here talk about some of the heavy hitters of evangelical influence that had Trump's ear during his presidency. Now, when it comes to someone like Trump, obviously it's not a stretch to think that most Christians didn't exactly find Trump palatable, especially conservative Christians, because he's known as being a con man and a philanderer who regularly appeared on Howard Stern's radio show, for example. A man who was married three times and cheated on his second wife with his third wife while his second wife was pregnant didn't seem to hold the Christian bona fides necessary to garner evangelical support. A bridge obviously needed to be built here, but who would represent his interest to the evangelical community? Enter Paula White, televangelist and prosperity preacher extraordinaire. Paula White rose to fame as the lead minister of a church called Without Walls International Church, with locations in Tampa and in Lakeland, Florida, which boasted a congregation of nearly 20,000 between both locations, making it the seventh largest in the entire United States. She replaced her husband, Randy, as the senior pastor of the church in Tampa in 2009. In 2011, White also became the senior pastor of the Lakeland location, making her the senior pastor at both locations and one of the most influential female televangelists in the country. Now, it's kind of interesting because it seems that, I guess that is more of the Catholic perception that women should not be church leaders, but given the rather fundamentalist interpretation of scripture by evangelicals, you'd think that they'd have some issue with a female church leader such as Paula White here. There are some who still do, very much. Um, I remember I had a female youth pastor for mm. quite some time uh, when I was a teenager, and a girl that I dated's mom was um, very strict, like, Southern Baptist and very, like, traditional. And she came in um, and had a very loud conversation with my female youth pastor in the parking lot of our church, telling her all about how she wasn't fit to be a minister because of her sex. Mm. So, like, that's still very much a part of it, but a lot of the more modern evangelicals i mean i guess it is kind of an example of the liberal values of western society kind of encroaching on traditional christian morality don't tell them that <laughs> well the church has always changed in response to culture 
It always has, it always will. It always will find that hole that it fits in in culture and it will fill that hole as fully and completely as it possibly can. Mm. But it, it can't stretch outside of that too much because if it does, you offend people and you lose followers. So you do kind of have to keep pace with social trends in that way. So yeah, there are a lot of very famous even um, evangelical female televangelists. It'd be probably the bigger name than Paula White is Joyce Meyer. I think most people probably know she is the prosperity preacher. So, Okay. Now, I, I'm still not as, as familiar with a lot of these televangelists, but that's okay. So Paula White here seemed to have her fingers in a number of pies. Why don't you go ahead and, and fill us in there? Yeah. She also is the personal minister to such names as Michael Jackson, Gary Sheffield, and Daryl Strawberry. I don't know who Daryl Strawberry was. He was uh, he was a professional athlete, actually. Okay, I had never heard of him either, but go ahead. She also is the personal life coach for celebrity Tyra Banks. A lot mm. of people probably are familiar with. Now, White is a proponent, I, I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, prosperity theology, which is a religious belief among some Protestant Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them, and that faith, positive speech and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. So you give us money, you'll get rich. Mm-hmm. Material and especially financial success are seen as signs of divine favor in this movement. So who better to minister to a billionaire future president than someone who is known for equating material wealth to moral goodness and spiritual purity? That's an aspect of it that I hadn't put entirely together at this point how their fondness for the prosperity gospel would also kind of present an inroad to supporting trump Mm -hmm. you know who is portrayed as being a very wealthy very successful individual although he's basically the celebrity version of the guy who takes out a second credit card to pay off debts on his first credit card Right. Well, it's the... Except, uh, you know, the loan sharks are fucking Russian oligarchs instead of just your general payday loan con men. Well, the Russian oligarchs are currently cut off from collecting right now, so... (laughs) Yeah, that's another whole thing about the sanctions going on in Russia right now. Trump no longer has access to his anonymous benefactors. So White became Donald Trump's personal minister. Mm-hmm. After he watched her on television, and then he called her. It was in 2002. He brought her to Atlantic City on multiple occasions for private Bible studies and has appeared on her television show. In June 2016, White was credited by James Dobson, another prominent figure in the evangelical movement, for having converted Trump to Christianity. White was also part of Trump's evangelical advisory board during his campaign for president. And she provided the invocation prayer during Trump's inauguration ceremony. Private Bible study with Donald Trump. Right. That sounds a lot like a private casting meeting with uh, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, there's a kind of a casting couch kind of uh, (laughs) connotation there that I find unsettling. Uh, Anyway, go ahead. But was she on the couch or the chair? Uh, There are many pictures... (laughs) There are many pictures of White with Trump, and it seems like, and pardon the pun, a match made in heaven. In fact, Trump appointed her special advisor to the Faith and Opportunity Initiative at the Office of the Public Liaison. And it is my opinion that securing the support of a well-known evangelical minister who thinks, looks, and acts like White was central to Trump's strategy of gaining support of the evangelical church. His position as a wealthy Christian 
president validated her message of prosperity theology and her support of him legitimized him as someone worthy of the support of the evangelical voting bloc. Now this brings us to the most boring guy in any room. <laughs> I like that. Good, good. Go ahead. <clears throat> A yes man and vocal critic of LGBTQ rights who was responsible for signing legislation like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which allowed discrimination against LGBTQ people so long as the discrimination was religiously motivated in his home state of Indiana where he was formerly governor. Mm. Mike, my wife wouldn't like that Pence. <laughs> As governor of Indiana, Pence also signed into law uh, HB 1337, a law which would have effectively banned nearly all abortion in the state of Indiana had it not been ruled unconstitutional. Pence then tried to prevent Syrian refugees from being resettled in Indiana, which was also ruled unconstitutional. Who better to be Trump's right-hand man? than the man who has repeatedly sidestepped the U.S. Constitution in favor of implementing an ideologically motivated legislation. Mm. Politically, Pence is known for being a staunch opponent of abortion rights, which gained him the support of many grassroots conservative activists. In three congressional sessions, he introduced legislation to block organizations that provide abortion services from receiving any Title X funding, even for services not related to reproductive health or family planning. Pence has also criticized comprehensive sex education. In 2002, he criticized a speech by then-Secretary of State Colin Powell, who said it was, quote, important for young people to protect themselves from the possibility of acquiring any sexually transmitted disease using condoms. He asserted that, quote, condoms are a very poor protection against sexually transmitted diseases, and that Powell was, quote, maybe inadvertently misleading millions of young people and endangering lives. So we have a guy in Mike Pence who is anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-sex education, and anti-birth control. <sighs> yep. So he's the one that's going to take the more traditional conservative Christians and gain their support. Yeah. White's the one who is going to convince the more modern evangelicals that follow the televangelists and the prosperity gospels that Trump is the one they should vote for. Mm -hmm. So Trump has on his left and on his right people who are going to attract different segments of the Christian voting bloc. So the selection of Mike Pence and Paula White to these positions, I, I cannot imagine that was not calculated. Well, calculated, but uh, calculated by Trump is the question. I don't think Trump necessarily was the brains of that. No. But we'll see. We'll see that, uh, I don't know, maybe there's somebody behind Trump pulling the strings, but... Uh... Uh, besides Putin? Uh... <laughs> well, Putin's a little busy at the moment. Yeah, at the moment. <laughs> well, but, you know, back in 2016... Uh... Yeah, July 14th, 2016, Mike Pence, who described himself as, quote, a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order accepted the Republican nomination for vice president. And now with White and Pence in tow, Trump firmly had the religious right under his tiny thumbs. <laughs> so I do believe that there's more to say about Pence as well because there was some other podcast or, or something that I had listened to that was talking about how Pence has had very high-level political aspirations for his entire life, and that 
part of his accepting the vice presidential position was less to do with trying to help Trump appeal to the religious right, but more as a power move for himself, for his own future political aspirations. He wanted to transition from Vice President Mike Pence to President Mike Mm -hmm. Pence and bring his very strong Christian values to the White House. And whether or not he will have any ability to do so in the future kind of comes down to our our last section here of our notes. Uh, Now, Trump's authoritarian behavior influenced heavy resistance from his political opponents. And it's no surprise that at least 25% of evangelicals embrace the QAnon conspiracy theory, seeing it as a satanically inspired attack on, quote-unquote, God's anointed leader. (laughs) (sighs) Trump also took advantage of the COVID pandemic to decry lockdown measures that prevented churches and communities from reopening. So despite his flaws, support for Trump never faltered among evangelicals during his time in office. And many evangelical leaders prophesied Trump's re-election, leading to some rather hilarious post-election meltdowns. But that's something we might (laughs) get into next time. Yeah, Pat Robertson among them, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, And Paula White. I mean, her post-election meltdown was amazingly bizarre. I mean, Jesus... An abundance of rain. An abundance of rain. (laughs) Yeah, amazingly bizarre. The disbelief and anger that followed his election loss was evident in the white Christian nationalist involvement at the January 6th insurrection and by the level of evangelical adherence to Trump's conspiracy theories of election fraud. Now, this anger has influenced a greater level of militarism among the white Christian nationalist movement. And in our next episode, we'll talk about what may be the poster child for this newer and more radical evangelical leadership, uh, pastor by the name of Greg Locke, uh, which has kind of been, once once we decided to start talking about televangelism, I think both Jesse and I had kind of agreed that we should kind of build up to addressing Greg Locke because he's quite influential right now. He's much more of the social media evangelist rather than the traditional Pat Robertson-style televangelist. I'm sure he does a lot of the televangelism as well, but he's become most famous or infamous because of his tweets and his social media video posts that he often produces. And um, it looks to be that this will end up being a at least a three-part episode here. Jesse and I still want to discuss the specific issues that are related to the rise of white Christian nationalism, their social conservatism, the the changes that they want to make to American society and American culture. And it looks like the best way for us to do that is to kind of tie them into our discussion of Greg Locke, in which we will pull very specific quotations that kind of speak to not only his unsettlingly angry preaching and militant attitudes towards Christian nationalism, but uh, also give us kind of a very contemporary perspective from these Christian nationalists on the, the issues and why they are 
so important. So, uh, Jesse, do you have any closing thoughts about the material that we discussed today here? I, uh, I think we threaded a, a pretty neat line through the white Christian nationalism all the way up to, to Trump. Mm. And the background of the narrative isn't what I ever really thought it was. Like I, like I mentioned, I didn't know anything about Ralph Reed before I went into this. Mm. I didn't even know about the a Christian defensive Trump book that he wrote. And right. the players that are behind all of this and their own like very short-term opportunistic and selfish goals, it really is very depressing that these are the types of people that rise so quickly to power in the United States and gain such unwavering support. Mm. And make no mistake, they are preying on religious people and their deeply held religious convictions in order to maintain their power. And having come from that environment and seeing how many really good people get caught up in it and get twisted by things like Fox News and, and Greg Locke and, and Pat Robertson, and it really is beyond depressing. It's an existential concern, at, at least for the state of the country. And I, I definitely need to interject humor into things while we're, mm. while we're doing this because I, first of all, I have no interest in doing like a totally somber podcast. And also <laughs> yeah, like, it's true. I, I just, man, thinking about the things that are still yet to come from this movement, it's, uh, mm. it's frightening. Yeah, it can be. And, you know, for certain podcasts especially like the gangster capitalism podcast that you cited the last time um it's very much just an auditory documentary mm-hmm. and those types of podcasts or lectures they certainly appeal to certain people and uh i, I agree i think we have to try to inject some levity into the conversation here not only because it's easier to listen to in general, but just because for our, for our own sake, our own mental health, you know, I do believe that humor is, is a relatively healthy way to confront some of these issues. Now, I think one thing that I can kind of tag on here at the end as well is to kind of reinforce also what Jesse said here, that a lot of these people are being taken advantage of, that they're deeply held beliefs and convictions are being unscrupulously manipulated by people who have very specific political and social agendas. And getting back to the title of this series of episodes here of being not all Christians, I think the last thing that we can kind of focus on here, um, just to kind of make room for the next episode to be more specifically focused on the issues themselves and how they are addressed or represented in the persona and preaching of Greg Locke will make him the entire focus of the third episode. I wanted to talk about something that's been in both the series of notes for the first episode and the second episode that we haven't quite got into yet, which was a study that was carried out by two individuals, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, who wrote a book collating their information called Taking America Back for God. Now, this was a broad study of the white Christian nationalist movement that talked about the demographics and how Christians in America have 
at least the way that Whitehead and Perry broke it down, four different levels of engagement with the idea of Christian nationalism. Now, their study was based off of a uh, survey that had seven statements in it, and it gave the people taking the survey six levels of agreement. So, you know, strongly disagree, disagree, don't care, you know, slightly agree, strongly agree, etc. And those seven statements were, number one, the federal government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation. Again, how strongly does one agree or disagree? Uh, the federal government should advocate Christian values. The federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. The federal government should allow display of religious symbols in public. The federal government should allow prayer in public schools. The success of the United States is part of God's plan. And the founding documents of the U.S. are divinely inspired. So this was the survey that they put out to the Christian population of the United States. And based on the responses of the participants, they broke down the levels of adherence to the ideology of Christian nationalism into four groups, the rejectors, the resistors, the accommodators, and the ambassadors. Now, as we mentioned, not all Christians. So it is just under half of the Christians surveyed in the study that outright reject or resist the machinations of white Christian nationalists in the United States. It should probably come as no surprise that most of these people are younger, that they have higher levels of education and income. They are most likely to be found in larger population centers or suburbs. And they also generally align more closely with the values of the Democratic Party, are majority liberal, and have more flexible views on the existence of God, the historicity and level of potential inerrancy in the Bible, and are generally the ones who reject the political motivations of the Christian nationalist movement. Now, the accommodators and ambassadors, basically these groups that are in support of Christian nationalism, we also see older individuals in the 50s to mid-50s more likely to be rural, more likely to have lower income and lower amounts of education, and also have predominantly higher conservative and Republican allegiances, along with having much more literalist beliefs about the Word of God and the, the infallibility and historicity of the Bible. And what's kind of an interesting demographic difference between the people who more openly support white Christian nationalism is that the supporters are predominantly women. There's a slightly higher majority of women than men in both the accommodators and ambassadors uh, category of this white Christian nationalist demographic. Now, the ambassadors and accommodators, they have a slight majority of evangelical Protestant practitioners in their group. 
but there were some specific uh, differences between the demographics, the, the entire spectrum of them. Uh, whereas whites generally see Christian nationalism in terms of the institutionalization of a white Christian supremacy, minorities, both the black and Hispanic Christians in America, generally see the idea of Christian nationalism in terms of the institutionalization of racial equality. So there's kind of a difference in focus between which parts of the scripture are embraced by each movement. I think uh, I mentioned to Jesse kind of before Mm -hmm. we started how it seems that the white Christian nationalists, they start with the Old Testament and jump straight to the end times prophecies while kind of skipping over a lot of the inconvenient teachings of Jesus that kind of (laughs) refute a lot of the Republican and conservative economic policies, if we'll just put it that way. Whereas minorities generally focus mostly on the gospel and the actual teachings of Jesus of, you know, love thy neighbor and, you know, get rid of the money lenders and all these other things. In the topic of immigration, obviously white Christian nationalists are anti-immigration. The minority Christians who are surveyed are all pro-immigration. And at least on the issue of LGBTQ equality, there was no real major difference between the white and minority Christian nationalists who make up the movement. So we are in a position, at least, where, judging by the survey, it's still roughly half of America's Christian population that is accommodating or actively working to establish white Christian nationalism in the United States. And at some point in the future, I'm trying to get my cousin to join us for an episode here. He was raised and homeschooled in a very traditional Southern Baptist, I believe, uh, family, and still maintains his faith, although his beliefs and his worldview have diverted quite substantially from his family's worldview. But I definitely want to get him to join us for an episode where he can talk about the issues of white Christian nationalism from a more moderate Christian perspective. And that's something that we're preparing to do uh, sometime this summer. He's a teacher right now, so we're waiting for him to begin his summer holiday and have the opportunity to sit down with us. Jesse, anything else in closing? Uh, any response to the, the survey or the, the demographics? It is kind of surprising that so many of the people who assent more closely to those are, are women. I wouldn't necessarily yeah. have thought that was that was the case. It does seem like a lot of the, especially like the anti-abortion and the anti-birth control stuff, that does seem very like anti-woman and like in a broader social context, like controlling mm. women. But then again, I guess, like, I remember growing up that it seemed like most of the people who went to protest at abortion clinics were the women from the church. Yeah. And it's a very interesting kind of phenomenon that people of of all kinds can be so convinced so thoroughly of something that they'll go against their own personal interests. Well, I think there's maybe some psychological aspect, at least in relation to this idea of the delayed gratification that religious practice represents. You know, it's in their self-interest to resist 
greater bodily autonomy and equal rights. Uh, and they, they feel as though they're going to be rewarded posthumously for doing so while they're alive. So yeah, there were definitely some surprising statistics in there. And that was the one that, uh, that definitely seemed to, to stick out to me as well. But we just wanted to kind of uh, wrap up with that particular information just to, again, reinforce the title of our series here of Not All Christians. So I think that'll bring this episode of Unheard Voices to a close. We got through quite a bit of information today, and I think we did a pretty good job discussing the more contemporary history and influences behind white Christian nationalism, moving on up into the era of Trump and beyond here. And as I mentioned in our next episode, we'll focus specifically on the social issues themselves that are being targeted by the white Christian nationalist movement. And we'll look at those through the lens of the preaching of Greg Locke. So Jesse, thanks again for joining in on this episode and contributing your time and effort in the note-taking process here and and scripting (laughs) for these episodes. And for Unheard Voices, this is Andrew Minear. And this is Jesse Burridge. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we will talk at you again soon.